The following message was given by Chris DeRocco on Sunday, August 20th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good seeing you all this morning. A lot of you are wondering, who is this bald man up here today? It's good seeing a lot of you again after a while. You know, it's been so long since I've been here um, for this service that we were facing that way last time I was here. That just places you. Anyway, my name's Chris. I'm, I am one of the pastors here, if you can believe it. Um, Anyway, it's a joy to see so many faces I know and to see so many faces walk in that I don't know yet. And uh, so this is kind of a homecoming for me, and so I'm stoked to be here. I'm going to try to help you appreciate that as well. Be excited about me being here. Um, Let's see how I do. Okay. Um, We are in the third psalm of our summer psalms series, and we've done Psalm 31, 32, and I'm now doing Psalm 33. Let's just jump right in and read it, and we'll get going this morning. Psalm 33, uh, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of all of them and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. May God help us this morning as we dig into his word. Neil Pashrika 
has one of the most popular blogs on the internet today. It's called A Thousand Awesome Things. Has anyone been to this site? It's called A Thousand Awesome Things. I love what he's doing with this blog, but in his blog, the word awesome can refer to things like free refills, clean sheets, kindergarten class photos, that three paycheck month that comes along every now and then, and putting a slice of lasagna on your plate and having it all stay together. According to him, these things are listed as awesome. With all due respect to him and what he's doing with his blog, can I just say that I think we need a different word to describe God and lasagna. <laughs> lasagna is good. It can even be great if you go to the right place. Lasagna is not awesome. To be fair, the word awesome doesn't mean in our vernacular today what it once did, but I would personally like to start a campaign this morning to recover the meaning of the word awe and ask that we only use it in reference to things that truly inspire awe. Now, I have several texts on my phone right now where my friends have texted me the word awesome and not referring to things that are awesome. That is okay, I forgive you, it's all right. There's no condemnation. I'm just saying that we need a better word for God than lasagna. Let's limit it to things that actually inspire awe. Let's take that word awesome and limit it to things that overwhelm us with greatness. Things that cause us to lose our balance, to forget about ourselves. Like the birth of a baby? Okay, that's awesome. All right, my wife and I were hiking um, a, few, a month ago through New Hampshire in the, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And as you, if you've been hiking up a hill, you, you know what this is like. You're trudging up the trail and you're talking, you're out of breath, you're, getting, you know, you're with someone, you're talking, 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 you're getting into stuff. And, and then finally though, at the end, once you reach close to the summit of whatever hike you're on, you come out on this rocky ledge and you stop talking. Why do you stop talking? Why did my wife and I, in the middle of a conversation, we came out in the middle, the trees broke, we walked out on this ledge and we could see for miles and miles and miles. Trees literally, literally thousands of feet below us sun coming through the clouds, glorious. We stopped talking and we sat there in silence. That's awesome. C.S. Lewis put it like this in The Problem of Pain. He said, imagine you come across a wild tiger. The likely emotion you'll experience would be fear. But now imagine that you believed you're in the presence of a ghost. You working on that in your mind? That feeling would be like fear, but it would be much more eerie. It'd be much more like uncanny or unnerving because we're not sure of what a ghost is going to do to us. 
but we're unnerved by the fact that there is simply a ghost near us. Then he goes on to say, now finally imagine that you are in the presence of a mighty spirit. The feeling that you would have would be even one more step removed from fear, and the disturbance would be profound. You would feel a sense of wonder and shrinking, not able to cope with the visitor that is near you. Perhaps this is the best way to understand the word awe. Do we experience awe anymore? Have we ever? When we think of God, when we approach him in prayer, when he speaks to us, when was the last time we were filled with awe? Have we ever experienced that? in relationship to God. The Bible is full of accounts where men and women did. I'm going to read from A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Whenever God appeared to men in Bible times, the results were the same. An overwhelming sense of terror and dismay. A wrenching sensation of sinfulness and guilt. When God spoke, Abram stretched himself upon the ground to listen. When Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush, he hid his face in fear to look upon God. Isaiah's vision of God wrung from him the cry, woe is me, and the confession, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. As I read that, does it sound strange? Is this so different from our experience? If I will be honest, it is not always been mine. When was the last time we were face down? We hit our faces, that we felt undone when we thought about God and we realized he was near. Perhaps we have forgotten who it is that is speaking to us right now. Could it be that we're so unconscious of God and because Could it be we're so unconscious of God because we're so conscious of ourselves? I think this has always been our problem. But I do believe it is almost harder now than ever to lose consciousness of yourself. Just eight years ago, right, I remember when I first heard the word selfie. I'd never heard of it. Ray used it in the office one time because he was working with college students, and he said, selfie. And I said, what on earth is a selfie? Think about your phone right now. Hey, how many pictures on your phone right now are of you? Okay, 10 years ago, you couldn't do that. All right, 10 years ago. We are hopelessly turned in on ourselves. And so it's not surprising when we come to the Bible that we move right past God and start immediately with us. How is this going to help me? What should I start doing and stop doing? And even when it comes to this psalm, we are so vain. I am so vain. You're so vain to think that this psalm is about you. (laughs) 
I can't believe that worked. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's really important to know that this psalm is not about us. It is about God. It is first and foremost about Him. And so that's really important. Why is that important? Because this psalm starts off with commands. I don't know if you caught that. This starts, shout for joy in the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, sing to Him a new song. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly intimidating to me. Because I can phone in a lot of things that look good to others. I can fake it. But you can't fake joy. You can't fake thanks. You can't drum up a new song about God's mercy. So the question is, after you read those commands, is how on earth am I going to get there? How on earth is that ever going to come to represent me? How can I do that in reality? Well, David's going to help us because we're going to get there by way of awe. David gives us five reasons in this psalm to fear the Lord, to stand in awe of him. I pray that this will help you as much as it has helped me this week. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. What's the first reason that David gives us to fear the Lord? He created everything we see, everything we know, everything we look at by speaking. He didn't even break a sweat. He spoke existence into being. He spoke being into being. You and I don't create anything. We manipulate. God creates. We manipulate the stuff that he made. He made everything we see. The implications of this are so incredibly vast. I'm so glad that David focuses on one aspect. Verse 6, the heavens and the stars. Why does he focus on the heavens and the stars? Why does he mention this? He wants to comfort us. He wants to help us. So he wants us to remember. If he wants us to be in awe of God, he is going to remind us of how big God is and how small we are. How big? Have we forgotten just how big God must be? Who's watching the eclipse tomorrow? <clears throat> Who's got the glasses? All right. <clears throat> We're still looking for a couple pairs if you have any extras. I mean, some of my kids will go blind, that's all right. But if you have a couple, that'd be awesome. Um, there's an estimated 22 million people are going to watch the eclipse tomorrow. 22 million people are going to watch whatever is going to happen up there. I don't even want to begin to describe it, okay? I'm curious about several things. One, who's making a million dollars off these glasses? I want to know that. Secondly, how many of these people will walk away amazed at a phenomena but be absolutely unmoved? And how many will think of how great and majestic is the one who put these two celestial beings up there? Will we be in awe of God? Maybe this will help. How far away, okay, past the sun, how far away is the next star from us, the star that God made? 
How far away is that? Okay. You know how fast the speed of light is. Do you? <laughs> I had to look it up, right? Ray knows it, but all right. It's 186,000 miles. Not an hour, a second. 186,000 miles a second. You know, what, you know how fast light moves? Light, that, in one second, light would travel around the world seven and a half times in one second. That's how fast it is. Okay, so maybe you can put all this together. I know I'm going to lose some of you, but man, this so helps me. Okay, those stars that we look up in the night and see, they are so far away that the light that left that planet that is now in your eyes left that planet anywhere from four to 10,000 years ago. Some of those stars may not even exist anymore. They are so far away. And God spun all this together with his word. You know Psalm 8 says that he made the heavens with his fingers? How how big must God be to, to have done that? Now, why why is this important? Do you ask a God this big and powerful to be your assistant? To help you? To enhance your life? Do you ask a God like this to consult you, with you, for you? No. You stand in awe of God. And you serve him. That's the first one. Second, David moves from the stars to the next biggest and most powerful force in the world in the ancient east. Past the heavens, it was the sea. It was the ocean. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deeps in storehouses. The Mediterranean Sea when we think about the Mediterranean Sea, we think Club Med. <laughs> we think peace, tranquility. That's not what they thought about the sea. The words that the Bible uses from the Jews, right, in that part of the world, these desert-dwelling Jews, they use words like roaring, tumult, raging, thundering. That's how they thought about the sea. The Canaanites in that area. They explicitly associated the sea with death and destruction, not peace and tranquility. Their most feared and evil god was simply called Yom, which means sea. And their god, Yom, the god of the sea, was always depicted as a great sea monster and was considered so evil and powerful. In one story, he even killed Baal. Middle Eastern people were terrified of the sea. This is why when Jesus calms the storm with his words, it says the disciples were afraid during the storm. You know what they said after Jesus calmed the storm with a word? The Bible says they were greatly afraid. They were more afraid of Jesus than they were the storm. The storm was terrifying to them. The sea was the greatest source of chaos in their world. What chaos 
are you in right now? What chaos are you feeling these days? Is it something with work? Something with your health? Your kids' health? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your political party. What chaos are you experiencing? What, what is causing you at this very moment to lose the illusion that you were in control of anything? I've been staring at a date on the calendar. August 23rd happens to fall next week. <clears throat> on that day, I will drop my baby girl off, who is now 18, at James Madison University. All right, yeah, good. <laughs> so I did, Dukes, right? That's right? Okay, I'm learning. Thank you. All right. I have five daughters. She is my first. This is a great thing for Lauren. But if you've talked to me, spent any time with me over the last couple months, ask me how I'm doing, not doing good. This is really different for me. It's unending. It's upending me. Um, and I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, Chris, please get over it. Um, and if you've, sent away, if you've sent kids off to college, you're like, bless his heart. <laughs> you know, um, but my, listen, my chaos is not your chaos. This is my chaos. And <laughs> this, is, this is the beginning of the end of a life that Rebecca and I have known. The only life we've known for 18 years. And for the next 10 years, every two years, we're going to be sending our children off. Okay. I, I'm, the end of the day-to-day -day parenting is in sight. I have so many regrets. So many things I wish I had done differently. And our, but our family, our home is changing, and there's nothing I can do. Stop it. There's no more words to say, and there's chaos in my heart. I'm dreading the drive home. And some of you have been so patient to listen to me um, as I talk about this. Some people have said some really helpful things and some unhelpful things. Um, this is you, I forgive you. But one of the unhelpful things people have said <laughs> is, um, you know this is the moment you've been preparing for your whole life. That's not helpful. Um, <laughs> what has been helpful, and I can't remember who said this, but bless you. They said, you know God loves her more than you do. I can't remember who said it to me, but thank you. So when, I was, when we were planning this series, I did not want to speak this week. I did not want to do this psalm. But God knew I needed this psalm. He knew I needed to get my eyes off of myself and to be in awe of his majesty. 
He's greater than my storm, than any roaring, tumultuous chaos we will ever face. You know, the NIV translates this and says that God literally puts the sea in a jar. He puts my chaos, he can put your chaos on his pantry shelf. I'm being tossed, but it's not chaos to God. What a great thing to remember how big God is. He puts the sea in a jar. The next biggest thing in David's world, in almost anyone's world, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He brings the counsel of kings, presidents, dictators, and democracies. He brings all their counsel to nothing. And he frustrates the plans of the peoples. What they think they say they're going to do by their own power and wisdom, they can't do. They think they do something apart from God. They do nothing apart from God. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales, which means they are weightless. God is more majestic than the universe, and he's bigger than all the kings and all their armies. What is it that gets done in the earth today? It's not the plans of the world's governments. Verse 11, it's the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Now, I don't want to get too complicated here, and I don't want to lose anybody, but this is, this is what this means. That everything that happens can be 100% attributed to us, to governments, to kings, to us. And at the same time, 100% attributed to God. It's 100% us, 100% God. God is so powerful and his good eternal plan is so big and complete that his eternal plan includes all of our willing acts and decisions. Now, I know that that blows our minds, particularly when it comes to evil that happens, right? And I'm in no way trying to, and David is in no way trying to make light of anything awful. It doesn't mean that we are resigned to evil in the world. It simply means that God is not wringing his hands over anything. He's not anxious. He's in control. And so before we ever start to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we must confess, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. His, he is so big that his sovereignty, that his eternal plan includes our free and willing actions. I don't get it. I don't need to get it. All I need to do is lift my hands and say, wow. Four, he knows the billions of galaxies. He, he puts all the chaos of the world in a jar. 
He controls kings and armies. But perhaps the most heart-stopping one of these things that he lists is that this all-powerful God who loves righteousness and justice knows you, knows everything about you. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. 14. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. A story is told about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. If you're into literature, you know that he was the author of the Sherlock Holmes, original Sherlock Holmes stories. Englishman, he decided to play a joke on five of his friends living in London. He sent a telegram to each of them one night with a five-word message. All is known. Flee immediately. Each of those five friends that night left London for France. What secrets do we each hide hoping no one will ever find them out? (laughs) These five friends obviously had some stuff going on that no one else knew about. (laughs) We're so slow to humble ourselves and confess our sins. Remember last week in Psalm 32, we keep silent about our sin. It's useless. He's so awesome that he knows every action of every human every day. God doesn't, and God just doesn't know our actions. He knows our hearts. He knows the desires behind those actions. We can fool a lot of people with the right behavior. But he knows how much We want to be noticed when we serve. He knows the angry rants in our mind and the accusations that we make against people that we will never have the guts to say. He knows all those things. He fashions the hearts of them all. He knows everything about us. You think the IRS, Google, and cookies on the internet and search engines know something about you. They know nothing This is a terrifying thought. It ought to be terrifying that God looks down from heaven and sees all of us. Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This should cause us to fear God. Why? Why is it a problem that we must give an account to God? Look back up at verse 5. It says he loves righteousness. He loves justice. To quote Tozer again, 
in olden days, men of faith were said to walk in the fear of God and to serve the Lord with fear. However intimate their communion with God, however bold their prayers, at the base of their religious life was the conception of God as awesome and dreadful. The idea of God transcendent runs through the whole Bible and gives color and tone to the character of the saints. The fear of God was more than a natural apprehension of danger. It was a non-rational dread, an acute feeling of personal insufficiency in the presence of God, the Almighty. We can feel really good about ourselves, sufficiently righteous, sufficiently just when we compare ourselves to others. But before the perfect and almighty God, we will never be sufficient. David then presses this home with some practical examples. Go, go back down, look at, look at 16. Verse 16 says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it can't be rescued. Try as we might to justify ourselves before God and others, it is useless. Our good efforts, our good works, are literally, a, in the Hebrew it says, a lying hope for salvation. We cannot pretend before God that sees all of our deeds. But probably the greatest reason to now fear the Lord comes next. Look at verse 18. Behold. The word behold is here because he wants you to take notice. He wants you to realize that something amazing is coming. Something that's going to change everything is coming. Behold. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love. The eye of the Lord. This is not like his omniscience that simply causes terror. The word eye of the Lord here, this means his eye, his personal eye, his fatherly eye is on his people. This is incredibly personal. Have you sensed that God is a person? He's not a thought. He's not a construct. God is not an idea. He's not a sense of principles. He is not law. He is not a book. I wonder if you've gone, if you've made it through those things to realize that God is actually here. He is a person. I was recently asked to think about some major turning points in my life. And, and as I dug back through some of my childhood memories and back through high school, I realized that, I, that some of the most marking memories of my life is having an acute sense of being alone. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I, as I look back over my life, I just remembered these acute sensations of being alone my dad, when I was little, was, was gone on um, military tours of duty, 
And I remember him coming back after one of those as a little child and not even knowing who he was. Um, I remember that for ninth grade, we moved across town and I went to a high school that I didn't grow up near. I didn't know a single soul. I was coming from a small private school of probably, you know, 150 kids. And I got dropped off at the curb of a public high school. Some of you already starting to feel a little nervous. Of 2,000 kids. I didn't know one of them. My parents dropped me off at the curb. Good luck. I had a profound sense of being alone, eating lunch alone, seeing everyone else know other people and have friends and have conversations, yet I was alone. Um, and then later on, when I went to the University of Richmond, you know, I was finally, you know, the slate was clean, I could start over in college, everything was going great, I was on the soccer team for a little while. And then all of a sudden, I was not. I was let go. I was never that good. Um, but what happened after that moment, it was this, again, this world, this identity I had always known. After that moment, I, re I remember leaving the coach's office, walking down the hallway at the Robbins Center, having no idea what was in front of me, having no idea what I was anymore feeling completely alone. And that is why, and God, you, and through all those things, but yet I felt even a greater aloneness in just a few months after that point. Because after God started to speak to me and reveal himself to me, I realized that without him, I was not just alone in this world, I was alone in the entire universe. And so one night, um, when I couldn't take it anymore and that aloneness was so great I prayed for the first time in my life in the, in the back pew of the University of Richmond Chapel and it just took one second it took, it took the smallest second for me to cry out to God in desperation and he shed abroad the love of God in my heart and there were these tears just like this and the sense was I had such a profound sense that I would never be alone again. I'd never be alone. Have, have you felt that? Does this move us? What kind of love was shed abroad in my heart? Look at verse 18 again. It's this steadfast love. It's this, it's this love that isn't, isn't general. It is the highest expression of God's love. It means that he has bound himself to us. It's not merely an attitude or an emotion. One person said it's a promise and assurance of future help and fellowship. This steadfast love is characterized by permanence, consistency, and reliability. It is rooted in God himself. My that's a great definition, but my favorite definition of God's steadfast love 
still comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is the love that God has for you. Are you moved by that this morning? Have you been moved? Like, are you characterized by being moved by that? If not, I think there is a clue in the next, in this verse. Verse 18, again, it says that God's people first fear him and then hope in him. If the love of God is not stopping us in our tracks, then perhaps you've lost sight of who he is. Maybe you've never really feared him. Maybe you've never really been terrified of him. Maybe he is so so small to you that he has been your assistant. Maybe you need grace this morning, like I need grace this morning, that first teaches our heart to fear, and then our fears relieve. We can't really know the love of God until we've had that acute feeling of personal insufficiency. But I understand that we are beset with doubts. I know if we're honest, we say, okay, I know intellectually that God might love me. I read it here. I get it. I'm putting some things together. But is that really enough? The fact that God has expressed his love through this word, is that really enough? God created everything. He is greater than all the chaos in your life. He holds every world ruler on a puppet string. He knows everything about you and has not rejected you. That should cause us to be in awe. And you may even say, hey, this is great theory and application, but how do I know this is for me? Like, 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 how do I know that God's hesed, hesed in the Hebrew, how do I know that's for me? The good news this morning and the greatest thing this morning is that God doesn't just tell us he loves us, he demonstrates it. He shows it. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says he demonstrates his love. How do we know that God will not turn away from us when we turn away from him? How can we really trust in his steadfast love? How do we know that the terrifying gaze of the Almighty is also a gaze of love for us. How do we know that? It is when we see that Jesus on the cross died for our sins. And not just sins in general, my sins. When I see that God has already turned away from Jesus because of my sin, and then received his son back through resurrection, If God would receive again his son who is carrying the sin of all God's people, not just mine, then that sin must have been dealt with. His justice 
that we've just read about that he loves has been satisfied. If Jesus, having taken our sin and then condemned for our sin, is then now received back from the Father, what else can we do to cause God not to receive us? The logical answer is nothing. Anything that would ever separate you and I from God has been removed. Whatever you can come up in your mind, Jesus has already died for that. Jesus has already been punished for that, and God then received his son. You can't do any more offense to God than Jesus did on the cross. You can't be any more of an offense to God than Jesus was for us. That's how we know that his love for us is not willy-nilly. It is not here one day and gone tomorrow. It is steadfast, always and forever, never giving up love. And for this, we should be in awe. And look how we're supposed to respond. Verse 20, our soul now waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is now glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Look at verse 22. It says, then it ends with this beautiful prayer. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The picture here is that David it's not that he's unsure of God's steadfast love. It's not that he's trying to earn it. He's simply stretching out his hands in desperation and in humble confidence. He's asking, may I know your love more and more. Bring it. I know that your steadfast love fills the earth, but now bring it home to my heart. That's exactly what we're going to do now and we take communion. Um, when we take communion, this is exactly what we're doing. We are coming to God with humble confidence. Like in verse 18, it says, fear and hope. Fear and hope. When we take the bread that represents Jesus' body broken on our behalf, we are fearful because we know that we deserve, we deserve to be broken. But Jesus was broken for us. But we also have amazing hope because we know that, but because we know of what God accomplished for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross, we have amazing hope. So when we stand up this morning, we take communion, we, we are confessing, I am deserving of the unfavorable gaze of this all-knowing holy God. But yet I have this humble confidence because I know what Jesus has done. And so I come longing to know, wanting to experience more of his steadfast love. Now, if you, if you are still working on that and you don't see yet that steadfast love in the cross, don't feel pressure to take communion. Just ask God to continue to show himself to you as he has been all morning through Psalm 33. Take a couple minutes, prepare our hearts, and then we'll take communion together. You've been listening to a message by Chris Rocco given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.